Hi, and welcome back to the Couch Wolves podcast. We are so excited. This is our third podcast, and the reception has been amazing. So thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you so much for the feedback. And most of all, for those of you listening who are part of the Couch Wolves community, thank you, because you're the reason that we put this out, we put this together, and we try and make this information possible. Today, I have Tori, Tori Peterson. She is one of our administrative. She writes for us. Um, she's also a dog trainer and a cat trainer, which is pretty darn cool. And she's the proud owner of a Central Asian Shepherd named Nikki. And Tori is a really cool person to talk to about primitive livestock guarding dogs. She's also was a hobby farmer before she moved out to where she lives now. And so she's got a really cool perspective on more of the natural uses for our primitive dogs. So why don't you say hi, Tori? Hello. Um, and why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So I grew up on a hobby farm, as you mentioned. Um, I had I bred rabbits for over 15 years and had anything from a small pig to many horse. Um, most characteristically, my yak Juno, um, which is actually she'll come up a little bit later uh, when I talk about Nikki. Um, and I had rabbits, chickens, pheasants, and all sorts of different critters over the years. Um, I went to school for small animal science and became a dog trainer. Uh, then I moved out to Wisconsin and left my hobby farm and now I train dogs and cats out here. That's spectacular and if anybody doesn't know Tori you need to follow her on Instagram and see all of her amazing training work. Tori what is your Instagram? So the cat one is um, at Space Cat Academy, and that is my cat training um, website and business. Um, and then Nikki has her own, and hers is N-I-K-I-T-A-C-A-S, so Nikita C-A-S. Um, and Peach has her own as well. But <laughs> No, you can absolutely share Peach's Instagram, because I'll tell you right now, I get a kick out of all of them, so definitely. What's Peach's uh, Instagram handle? Hers is a little bit harder to say, so it's uh, I underscore M underscore just underscore Peachy, so I am just Peachy. Oh, I don't think that's that hard. It doesn't have any weird spelling in there. That's great. And I, I again, there's such amazing Instagrams. You know, Tori's also active on Facebook and in our forums. And also, one other cool thing, Tori's also our artist for all of our amazing merchandise, which I have to update because she sent me another, like, 20 other images that I haven't had a chance to get up. But, yeah, Tori's a phenomenal artist as well. And I know freelance is a little bit in that if uh, somebody needs something. So definitely reach out to Tori, our little jack-of-all-trades here at couchwolves.com. Okay, Tori, so what made you get a, well, we could start off with just a Central Asian Shepherd, which is what Nikki is, or just a primitive dog in general, especially growing up with, you know, normal farm dogs? Sure. So, yeah, I, I grew up with the closest thing, I guess, would be um, my, we had a Husky Malamute mix when I was growing up, and we had a German Shepherd Irish Wolfhound mix was kind of a odd one um but yeah so I, I, my boyfriend rob and i were taking horseback riding lessons and the woman that we were taking lessons from had um it's a, it's a long convoluted story but she ended up having uh four puppies that she was looking for homes for 
Um, and at that point, we had kind of a population of coyotes that would come over our mountain and go up the other side and had some vulture issues, which Molly knows well. Huh. She did work on the overpopulation of um, black vultures in the area of New Jersey that we're both from. Yep. Um, and they were actually killing my ducks because they ran out of food. So I was looking for a livestock kind of guardian dog. Um, we had gotten a yak as well for that purpose who ended up with the role of livestock guardian for our farm. Um, so I originally got Nikki to be a livestock guardian dog, but she decided that she would rather be a couch wolf um, and do pet dog things. So we got her with that intention, but she, she switched the roles on her own. <laughs> she just became a farm dog after that. That's okay. I mean, she certainly does enough other things with you, and you, you do a lot of work with Nikki, which is very impressive. So I'm sure you had certain ideas and expectations having going to school for animal science and things like that. But when you got Nikki, did she sort of fall into what you expected or were you told something different? Sort of what was your experience in adding, especially a primitive livestock guarding dog to your family versus some of the more practiced ones like Maremmas and things like that? Sure, sure. So um, the, the one that I had met before I committed was not the best example of the breed um, and was a extremely serious um, estate guardian dog. And um, there was some, some issues there with him. But, uh, and so when I was researching the breed, there was a whole list that I remember, which kind of cracks me up now. There's, um, and I, I, I agree with having a list of reasons why not to get one of these dogs because you really need to come into it with a different mindset than some, you know, live in a lab or even some of the more um, gentle guardian breeds like a Great Pyrenees and mm -hmm. things like that. Guys tend to be more serious. And so when I was researching, I remember this list saying all the reasons why not to get a central Asian. And there were things on there like um, they not only, they're not necessarily like having a normal big clumsy dog, like a Mastiff or a Great Dane where they're content to kind of hang out on the couch a lot of the time. Um, they are very powerful. They can hop fences um, like some of our other primitives. Um, they are extremely fast when they get going, um, and the, the thing that really stands out is their really serious personality. Now, Nikki is a little bit softer. Um, she loves people. She does have dog issues, but we have come so far um, with that, especially after meeting Molly and <laughs> <laughs> switching over to positive training. Uh, that you, made a huge, what, huge change. Well, and you applied it magnificently. I mean, there's a lot of people that will swear it doesn't work because they don't apply it well or correctly, and you didn't. You yep. you signed up, you dove in, and you have the results to prove it, and I'm very proud to, you know, see what you do all the time, so. Mm -hmm. and things like that 
Um, although many are kept in suburban lifestyles and mm-hmm. there are challenges, but I do find that if you work on it from a young age and work on it properly and do um, the type of training that I've employed with Nikki, um, it's more possible than people let on. Yeah, well, I mean, you do. You find the time between work and you did school, and yet somehow you still find the time to make Nikki as happy and comfortable as possible. I mean, you even um, you even compete with Nikki in sports, correct? Yep, we do nose work, and um, we have taken classes in barn hunt and um, in rally, and so we dabble with that just on our free time. But we compete in nose work, and she loves it. And she's good at it, too. I mean, I'll never forget that exterior hide where she was just like, I got this. And I'm like, okay, well, can Nikki explain this to Journey? Because Journey doesn't seem to get this. (laughs) (laughs) And that was after her whole issue with her her poop issue. Yes. Which, by the way, you wrote a fantastic blog post about, which our listeners should should read, because especially if you're dabbling in sports or you take sports way too seriously, um, Mm -hmm. I think you, you really created a grounded point of discussion there um so that being said with all the sports and the things that you do with nikki do you find that enrichment is really important for a household livestock guarding dog absolutely um so nikki is raw fed and i i actually wrote a blog on this as well for um for your training company yes and i'm pretty sure no you also have raw fed articles on couch wolves too for kinder companions and couch wolves yep Uh uh-huh and so a lot of times I get people are saying, you know, well, I don't put kibble in a puzzle toy if I'm raw feeding and how does that work? So I try to get as creative as possible with the enrichment stuff. Um, so we have all, t- all types of freeze dried meats and things that we do in the normal kibble puzzle toys and we do kind of scent games with enrichment and she has a blast with her buster cube um (laughs) with with her freeze-dried meat in there and we also put her meat into puzzles that she has to kind of figure out before she eats too so she gets a lot of brain work that's awesome um you certainly seem to be brave in trying different products. Um, didn't you also at one point do like one of those little like monthly mail order ones? Yeah. Oh yeah. It. Yeah. So it was a raw food box, and I should totally get it again since I moved. But it came with a seafood of the month, which was usually like a freeze dried um, or a dehydrated fish, and then it came with or salmon skins or something, and then it came with. Um, an organ meat and a muscle meat of the month and a few chews and she was all about that. She oh, cool. It. Now, it's funny because you have such, well, what people would think are such different companion animals because you have Nikki, your Central Asian Shepherd, a livestock guardian, and you have a cat, um, which you also train, which I think is fantastic. I think more people should think about the fact that we shouldn't be speciesist about how we have our relationships with our pets. Um what differences do you find in how you interact with Peach versus you interact with Nikki when it comes to just training or having a social life with your animals? Well, it's interesting because we always um, look at we look at our primitives as being kind of cat-like. Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> with their, you know, sometimes they can have attitudes or you know the the stereotypes that 
follow cats are also usually attached to primitive dogs. And I find that I ended up with a very cat-like dog and a very dog-like cat. And so it's basically like having two primitive dogs. But um, <laughs> kind of evened out somehow. <laughs> yes, it evened out. And, I, and they, they train in very similar ways. The only difference is Nikki is very low-key in the house and is content to kind of just hang out. And the cat needs to be doing something at all all times um in <laughs> fact right now she is in the bedroom put away because otherwise she would be doing everything in her power to get my attention anything from hanging from the blinds to offering tricks um and there's really no way that i could pay attention in those situations um but she also needs tons of enrichment and i think that's another thing that people don't do often with cats is they show all of these problem behaviors, whether it's meowing or getting into things or things like that, and um, they don't. People don't realize how much work that you know they need to do with their cats. They need to you know have enrichment, play with them, train them, um, and you don't need to live with impulsive animals in general, <laughs> whether it's a primitive dog or a, or a cat. Um, same thing. I. I'm all about the calm, zen kind of household life. I mean, I think that message is so important. I mean, and I'm laughing as you're saying this because, you know, we're talking about two completely different species and how, like you said, primitive dogs are very cat-like. Yet I'm over here actually trying to um, enrich my chickens. Um, <laughs> I've got four baby chicks, literally four inches from, from my computer where we're recording this podcast right now. And when they get bored, they tap the glass and I don't need them peeping and banging through this entire podcast. So what I do, I threw in a, a whole handful of, of freeze dried crickets, I guess is what they are. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really doesn't matter the species we're talking about. If we want to have them Zen and quiet and content, we, we have to, we have to give them the things to, to equip them. So I think that's a perfect example. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's also a great point because um, many of the people who say that, you know, primitive guardians or, you know, especially the primitive guardians, but just primitive jobs in general kind of, um, function in a suburban household. I think a lot of that comes from frustration and boredom on the dog's part. So mm -hmm. I think part of the reason why I have the success that I do um, living in a suburban area, neighborhood, um, with Nikki is that she does get a lot of mental stimulation. We had previously, now she's, she's going to be six in December and she calls how far we walk. Um, but we, last summer we're doing two miles, um, in the morning walks around the neighborhood and she has free reign to sniff anything she wants and stop and lay down and it's not a race to see you know how quickly we can do the walk and she gets all the brain games and then we train and practice nose work and things and i think that makes the real difference of how she's able to handle life i think if i just kind of let her go and didn't work on training and, and enriching her she would be more of a disaster well, and I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, we, we constantly talk about the reason primitive dogs, we treat primitive dogs as different at Couch Wolves is because there is a genetic component to the, why, the way reasons are 
dogs behave the way they do. It's not just clean slate dog that pops out of two parents. And if we think about the life of a livestock guarding dog, and I had the pleasure of um, focusing on livestock guarding dogs for a welfare class that I took recently for graduate school. They have a ton of stimuli when they're out working. You know, it's really not this country bumpkin life where they just sit in the middle of the field and wait for a predator to show up. They're scanning, they're checking on their flock, they walk a perimeter. You know, there's a lot that they have to do each day. You know, think about what a security guard does. And when we bring them into a suburban household, we take all of that away. They exist in a room or two with a few comfortable pieces of furniture and nothing for them to think about. And, you know, that's almost purgatory for them. So it's really important, I think, like you're saying, to give them the chance to have an environment to patrol, to have sniffs to go take, have a chance to lay down, take in information, um, see who else has been in the area. And then, like you said, then using similar um instinctual behaviors like you're saying like sniff sports to again give her even more outlets that normally she would get if she was working on livestock absolutely and i think there's two points to take um from what you just said one of them is one activity that she probably finds the most enjoyable out of her day is when the weather is at least decent enough to sit outside we are in wisconsin now (laughs) so We've had some odd weather here and in New Jersey over the past year, but when we're when we're able to, um, we sit in this uh, sit at a park and there's a um, kind of a pavilion that we sit in and it overlooks this park and she lays down and does exactly what she was bred to do and just scans the whole park and just waits. now, for her, she is reactive to other dogs, and that her threshold has come way down. Um, but if she does see a dog, she definitely tells me that it's there, uh, <laughs> or sort of out of the out of place thing. Um, she scans, takes it all in, and whatever changes afterwards needs to be, you know, talked about or at least told. Um, what a good girl! <laughs> of course, right? Yeah. Um, and that brings me to my second point of um, a lot of these dogs, you know, like you said, they do live in a few rooms in the house and they sit on comfortable furniture. And we really need to be aware of the fact that their job is to patrol. And many times we see behavior problems that stem from um, from livestock guarding dogs living in homes, such as alerting, the barking behaviors, quote, mm-hmm. What people love to say is barking at nothing. Um, I I never believe it's at nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their, their nose is so amazing. Their ears and sometimes eyes, if they're mm-hmm. looking out, are seeing, hearing, taking in something that we aren't aware of. And um, there's always something that they they have to you know tell us about. <laughs> No, I think you're absolutely right. It's funny you actually mentioned that because, I mean, I'm I'm the proud owner of a Tibetan Mastiff, so another primitive livestock guarding dog. And it's funny because I admit that I am the person that's like, oh, my God, shut up. There's nothing out there. And I, I agree with you. There is. There's probably a deer or a skunk. Um, one of my professors this semester we were talking about something. I don't even remember. And the slide she talked about is you, you actually don't want to know what's on your property. Never, ever put a trail cam in your yard because you don't want to know. 
and that your dog is right. Your dog does know what's out there. If they're barking at something, there's something out there. It, we have a horrible sense of hearing. We have a horrible sense of smell and we have a mediocre sense of sight. And our dogs have been bred for tens of thousands of years, either purposefully or as we talk about land races. So based on pressures from the environment to survive and adapt and respond to those environmental cues and we, however, have been spending even longer time learning to ignore those cues. So they do have something to tell us. And it's probably more grounded in science than it's a ghost or the house shifted or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> but you yeah. bring up a good question, or at least you bring up a, a good point. That was something I did want to get to, which is what do you find are some of the more common behavior problems um, housing a primitive livestock guarding dog in a home versus, you know, what they're naturally predisposed to do? Sure, sure. So, um, so some things, and I was talking to one of my colleagues um, at the training company that I'm at about this, and we find that a lot of these dogs, when they do have behavior issues like separation anxiety um, and some reactivity things, it comes on a little bit stronger than, you know, some other dogs, or it might start earlier, or for the central Asian um it's, it's commonly talked about in the breed that they come into their full temperaments at three years old. So um, Nikki is a puppy, was super goofy and um, loved everything, loved dogs, loved people, still loves people, but loved them, you know, nothing could, nothing could change her mind. She wanted to greet everything. And um, as she aged, she became a little bit more skeptical of the things around her. <laughs> Um, I love that word, skeptical. That's, <laughs> skeptical is so perfect. I'm sorry, continue. <laughs> sure. So people are still great, and she wants to, you know, still greet every one of them, but for some primitive guardian dogs, that's not the case. As they age, um, there are a few central Asians that I can think of off the top of my head that went from being socialized to many people um, and then as they got to be two, three years old, really only accept their immediate family. Um, and that's something that you need to think about when bringing one of these into your home as, you know, a suburban, bringing, in, bringing them into a suburban lifestyle is that sometimes genetics will kind of overrule some of our training and it does take a lot of work, um, a lot of work to work on some of these behavior issues and I you know that's definitely one of the things that I've worked on with Nikki is um you know as she aged she definitely became more choosy and skeptical of stranger dogs um at this point we have you know brought her threshold down and threshold is we can think of that as kind of her bubble mm -hmm. um for the, you may not know it's how far something needs to be that she's going to whether it's okay you know in an okay space or whether it's too close for comfort for her uh when we started this journey of um working on reactivity really heavily in a few years ago um her threshold was over 200 feet away and now we can you know walk across the street from a dog and it's completely fine she just ignores it and that is really what dogs are supposed to, or what these dogs are supposed to do. Um, genetics don't always allow for that, but they're supposed to be um, sort of, I would 
say um, smart about how they interact. They're supposed uh-huh. to ignore other dogs unless there's a threat. Is is really maybe the word considerate, not in the yeah. kind considerate, but in the considering. <laughs> Or, I don't know, critical, but not in the bad critical. Like, we mean when we yes. say critically consider something, we mean to be considerate of all, all the elements. Definitely. Yeah. And so they, they're supposed to look out at other dogs and, and decide, mm-hmm. let's say, um, make their own decision about what they think about mm-hmm. the other dog before they react. And I think that's something that has certainly come through the training process, but mm-hmm. it can be difficult. Um some other behavior issues are, you know, people reactivity, dog reactivity, um, separation anxiety is a huge one, um, especially if they, you know, cling on to um, a person or an area that they're used to. Um, they can feel kind of uncomfortable if they're not with them. So I think that definitely goes back to being with a flock. They're always supposed to be looking over something and can become a challenge if they don't have that. No, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, when you take an animal that for the last few 10,000, you know, 10, 20,000 years is bred to be a strong companion to whatever they're bonded to, so a flock, a village, then you take that away and you leave them for eight to 10 hours a day and you spend three hours with them on either end of that, you know, there's going to be a lot of despair, a lot of confusion, and eventually for that animal a, a negative you know behavioral experience and they're going to act out so it makes sense also when you talked about the developmental period i agree with you wholeheartedly and it's i find any of the large primitives seems to go through this you know we see it with akitas we see it with tibetan mastiffs you know a lot of these breeds they'll hit that three-year-old mark and maybe they were the most gregarious dog on the planet and all of a sudden a switch flips and people get very frustrated with their dogs because of that. We also see it in, as, as you and I have both worked with many people in multi-dog households where even yep. the, the most modern breeds can have altercations with other dogs that live in a household. Add to that, that certain level of suspicion and um, you know, different breeds getting along or not getting along because of different reasons. And it can be very challenging for, for them to be in a multi-dog household. Absolutely. Yeah. It's Absolutely. funny, too. I mean, Nikki at least never forgets, because when you came back to visit, remember how Shinra, my Tibetan master, remembered Nikki, and they were like, oh, my God, I know you. <laughs> oh, yes. And, you know, science still has to uh, make a decision on this one. <laughs> I don't know that we'll ever know, but Nikki totally. So I don't know if she sees, uh, <laughs> she likes the breed. <laughs> no, I think it is. It's very challenging. Um, now you have worked professionally as a trainer for years now. How do you see training methods affecting dogs like this? Sure. So, um, when you come at a, a, really any, any dog, I would say, but especially these suspicious and, um, I would say even, you know, the loyalty and the patience that some of these dogs have, and Mm -hmm. I'll get into that later too, but, um, you know, they, they're very independent, and a lot of these primitive dogs, you know, whether it's the independence, the suspicion, uh, they don't do well with force, and they will shut down and pretty much say, screw you, and they won't listen, and it hurts the bond. And I had this experience with, um, with Nikki, 
we started out with balanced training, quote-unquote more balanced, um, and there were corrections for, um, for issue, you know, when she wouldn't do something right away or whatever it was. And that really made her sort of distant as a training partner, and she was resistant to wanting to work and, um, and overall just kind of a lackluster approach. And, you know, for some people that have always trained their dogs in this way, they might contribute that to being a primitive dog that, oh, yeah, they don't like repetition or they don't like to work or um, they don't want to work for you. And I, I would say overall they don't want to work for you in general but they want to work with you yes <laughs> and that's where i saw a huge difference um when you when you work with a primitive dog especially a primitive guardian with rewarding them and paying them for their behaviors that you want to see with positive reinforcement it really changes the dynamic with them um because they start to you know, anticipate things really want to learn really want to work for things nikki is an awesome awesome trick dog because of the fact that she uses her mind you know they're very smart love to use their minds to work out puzzles and um and different problems and she uses that to kind of do what we call shaping which um small approximations towards an you know a full end goal and she does that super well because i think she's always thinking about how to how to finish it up and how to what the end goal is going to look like and so by using positive methods, it you know, like I was saying before about the reactivity, instead of every time she sees a dog, you know, at a distance and starts getting alert, um, we we were gonna, we were told to pop her with a choke chain or um, or a collar and things like that, and it made her more anxious, made her more on edge. So she would start anticipating the negative experience with seeing other dogs. Whereas over the last few years, we've switched over to positive training, and now she's able to calmly look at the other dogs and even, you know, have positive experiences with stranger dogs um, walking by without an issue, just able to look at them without having problems. And even um, just the other day, we were walking, and a dog was reacting at her, and barking, growling, you know, lunging across the street, and she looked to me because she knew that the better option was we just we just walk by. She's not going to do anything, and we're just going to keep going because she's learned that food comes when we're quiet. Spectacular. Uh, so it made a huge difference. Absolutely. I mean, and the cool thing is, I at least got to see the transition because I connected with you when you were just starting to try and you were maybe getting a little disillusioned with the results of what you were presently trying. And yeah. I, I'm a firm believer of I'm never going to tell you how you're going to work with your animal. I'm going to present you with options. And if you're on board, great, let's run with it. And you, you did, you went to the seminars and you yeah. applied the yeah. techniques. And I admit this is where I'm always humbled because how I've applied the techniques, I don't think has ever looked quite as nice as they do when you do them with Nikki. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah, that means a lot. Um, I firmly believe that if we had continued down that road, we would not be in the place that we are today. In fact, mm -hmm. I think her threshold would have just get it would have just kept getting bigger and bigger instead of smaller and smaller because the farther you know 
she saw dogs and the more she was corrected for showing her natural behaviors of alerting towards um you know a strange thing it would have it would have continued is yeah so i have to segue here for a minute because i can't help myself so can you tell us about juno the yak real quick (laughs) (laughs) yes she comes from the uh the same part as their tibetan um, their scientific name, which is kind of fun, is Bosgrunians, and it's the grunting bovine. And instead of mooing like a cow or making other noises, they go and make like a hmm or a huh noise, which is comical in itself. Um, they're a very odd-looking animal. They, they have handlebar-type horns. They look kind of like a cow, but they have a long skirt down um, that covers their legs to prevent bites from flies, and they have a long, flowy tail, kind of like a horse. So they kind of look like a a combination of a bunch of different animals, sort of like a buffalo, but a cow. Um, They're used for many different things. Um, In Tibet, they naturally, um, you know, where they're naturally found, they use them for milk, they have a much better milk than cows. Um, they have bigger fat glob- globules that you can skim off. Um, they use them as oxen and they pull carts. They ride them. They use their meat, which is also much healthier for you than cow meat. Um, and overall, they're a super interesting animal. And they also, and the reason why I have one, or my parents now have her, um, she is the livestock guardian to my goats. Um, so I used to also breed Nigerian dwarf goats. And so she watches over them and she is very critical over any dog looking or predator looking animal that comes near the fence, including Nikki. She does not appreciate her. Um, <laughs> and smashes her head and her horns into the fence to keep them away. So she's a very effective livestock guardian as well that's really interesting i mean because we do we think about you know traditionally using dogs and things like that but that yes in fact there are other species that like llamas and yaks and things like that that we can use also as livestock guardians and you also answered the question i was wondering which is how does nikki and juno get along but clearly they just agree to keep to their own spaces yes yes nikki doesn't care but and she goes up and sniffs her, but Juno is, is basically like, get out. <laughs> yeah. Juno's instincts um, say, nope, you're still a dog. Stay out of my pen. Definitely. But Nikki and Juno, separately with other animals, are both very, very good with them. Um, Nikki, with, you know, I bred the rabbits for 15 years, and she was amazing with them. They, you know, baby rabbits, adult rabbits could be running around her, and she would just kind of sit there and um and kind of hang out the goats would be all around her they would share grain sometimes which wasn't always my favorite but you know (laughs) um chickens running around and they were all great together and it was very um very peaceful and it really really showed how good the central asian breed can be with their livestock um especially coming from you know specific lines that are bred Mm -hmm. um for for those qualities and I think that that passes along to suburban lifestyle excuse me in the way that 
she shows great amounts of patience with things that are kind of in her bubble. So the cat actually was standing on our coffee table the other the other day, and Nikki came up to sniff her, and Peach launched herself, Peach the cat, launched herself at Nikki's face and jumped on her, and Nikki kind of looked at her like she was nuts. But other than that, <laughs> you know, um, didn't didn't have a negative reaction and overall she shows great amounts of patience with the cat because the cat is that annoying little sibling um, and kids and other people people with disabilities she is amazing um, in the way that she presents herself so it really shows you know some of the qualities of the breed no, I, I mean, I think that's that's a really interesting perspective because we think about, especially since, you know, briefly, you know, five, ten minutes ago, we were talking about challenges with multiple dog households and dog aggression. And, you know, on the flip side, we could say that she's great with chickens and ducks and goats and rabbits and, you know, your crazy kitten and <laughs> so many other animals, whereas plenty of other breeds are not. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I have these baby chicks here. <laughs> And it's funny because while you were talking, I'm glad you were able to keep talking because I momentarily had to stop an emergency where one of the chickens had gotten out of the brooder. And I do know that because um, I thought the lid was on and it wasn't. And I do know that quite a few of my dogs would want to eat these guys. So like, that's a huge difference. Now, my Mastiff is very curious, but we're very slowly introducing him because he was never bred with livestock. He's, you know, he's knows dogs and people, but he's met livestock very, very um, rarely. So that's going to be its own introduction, but it is interesting when we think about these different dogs, how they can fall into what they were bred to do, mine to hunt and kill yours. Well, it's with the exclusion of Shenra yours to be like, no, all animals are cool, but dogs, dogs, you got to watch out for. <laughs> yep. Dogs there. And I'm not sure, um, the validity of this specifically, but I read that their nickname um, over in Central Asia is Volkoldov, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, not even sure if this is legit, but I have read it somewhere, um, but that Volkoldov means wolf crusher or wolf, um, kind of like destroyer, mm -hmm. um, and so they, they're definitely bred to be skeptical of other canids, and, um, there's some pretty hefty predators out in you know, anywhere in the Central Asian region of the mm -hmm. world, um, anywhere from, you know, Russia to um, Iran and Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and all of those areas, um, you know, they were bred to be nomadic, um, nomadic guardians with their, their villages of people who would travel through, you know, mountains and deserts and everything, trading goods and, um, and their sheep. And so they were protecting the people and, you know, and the, and the flock from different things that were pretty serious, you know, threats to their, their flocks and everything. So they're definitely serious in whatever they commit themselves to. <laughs> well, I certainly can't speak for your, I don't even know what language that would be. Um, so I can't, I can't comment on that, but at least in my own research, for my own academic purposes, it's interesting because, and this is valuable for anyone listening who doesn't have a Central Asian, as the tricky part is we can't always apply the same things to each dog. Um, in my own research, some 
primitive livestock guarding dogs are bred to stay with the flock regardless. That all they do is chase off a predator, but they will never leave their flock. And meanwhile, there are other primitive livestock guarding dogs that will leave their flock for days to go and hunt down a specific predator that attempted to go after the flock. So each dog has a different purpose. I know that Kangles are different than Anatolians in, in that respect. Um, Central Asians and Avcharkas of different lines have different, you know, elements of that different perspective. So it's valuable to know that some are going to be much more grounded in their people and others are going to be like, no, I really want to make sure that threat never comes back. So it's, yeah. it's valuable to sort of try and look at it from those different perspectives. I'm trying to think. One other thing that was really fascinating is some primitive livestock guarding dogs will attack, whereas others actually display play behaviors to confuse predators and, um, stop the, the, the predation motor patterns. And generally then the coyote or wolf will just run away because they don't understand why a big hundred pound dog is trying to play with them. <laughs> I love it. So it is, it's really fascinating how, how the, and I mean, we're talking about something that the environment itself has, um, put on these animals. It, it, yeah, we definitely. can't teach them this not easily. Anyway, this is something that, you know, they were either culled or the environment killed them, or they survived and reproduced. So, you know, Definitely. that's pretty extreme. Absolutely. They're a fascinating group of, um, of primitive dogs, especially like you were saying with all their different jobs. And, you know, the central, some of them are strictly for livestock, and then some of them are a state and, um, you know, protect people and the livestock as well. So they have so many different roles and depending on their region, as you were saying, there's even um, with the Central Asians, they were all, you know, survival of the fittest sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So the weak ones were killed by predators, whereas the ones that were too aggressive with the people that they were around were also called so that they didn't harm um, the people that they were with. And it's a really interesting thing to see how thousands of years really shaped them to be what we, you know, what I have in my living room right now, mm -hmm. um, sleeping on the floor. You know, they have a super robust history. Yeah. And it's shown in, you know, even just how they look. They, Central Asians come in a variety of different colors. They come in different coat uh, lengths. Um, their styles are different per region. And they even have different nicknames per where they were, um, you know, hmm. what country they were in and things like that. So they can look totally different. Their head shapes, um, you know, like I was saying, the coat looks totally different. Even just the way that their bodies are, you know, laid out is can be super uh, interesting and in how they how they all differ from each other. And I think it's so valuable, you know, in, in trying to look through the academic materials, the peer-reviewed papers from my own research, um, it's interesting because a lot of this hasn't been looked at. I mean, the primary source for all of this is, is Dr. Coppinger, and he only hits the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this stuff. But you're absolutely right. Um, in my own work, when I mention land race, people don't know what I'm talking about. And in case you guys are listening and, and have missed that part, a land race breed is a is a dog that has been greater has had a greater impact on their adaptation from the environment than on selective breeding. So that means that, like Tori is saying, these are dogs that would primarily die off because they don't survive well in their environment. They need a certain coat. They need a certain build type. They need a certain degree of aggressiveness or tameness 
to interact with those in their space to survive versus the post-Victorian um, so, you know, breeding pressure that was to breed for looks or to have a herding or working dog temperament. So there's there's a lot of differences there, but we it's very easy to forget that prior to that Victorian era of mass breedings of dogs for personal whimsy, um, it was the environment that was that had the greatest impact on a dog's survival and what made them look or act the way that they did. Yeah, I mean, and what you're saying applies even to village dogs and street dogs. You know, the ones that are hyper-aggressive, people are going to go out and kill. And the ones that are tame but are choosy about who they interact with are possibly going to be the you know, the, the most likely to survive. And that's why we get very skeptical primitive dogs that are like, mm, I don't know you, I don't want you to touch me. I won't bite you, but, you know, you just keep to you and I'll keep to me. And once I'm convinced that you're cool, we'll be friends. Definitely, definitely. So with no, go ahead. Nope. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say, with all that you now know about primitive dogs, primitive livestock guarding dogs, um, do you ever plan on adding one to your household someday? You know, post Nikki, pre Nikki, you know, any of that? What, what are your thoughts? Um, I would have to say that, you know, I, I go back and forth. Rob and I have maybe differing opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do have to, you know, make sure that everybody in your house is on board. Oh, sure. I would say that it would be really hard for me to find, um, in some ways it would be really, you know, I'm skeptical myself of whether or not I'll be able to find one with a soft enough temperament for my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is training, but also genetics. Mm-hmm. And so if I can find one, same. I work, I I love all the clients I work with. I love all the dogs that I get to work with. 
but I definitely love to come home to my crew and have the lifestyle that I have with my dogs. And it is a different lifestyle. Um, and that's, I think, something important to talk. You know, I, I talk to my, especially my remote clients who are primarily primitive dog owners. And that's sometimes what we have to talk about is, like you're saying, you have to sort of weigh your lifestyle expectations and what's going to fit right both for you and for your dog. And if you do go in a direction that's not conducive to a livestock guarding dog, then maybe that's not the right dog for you in the future. So I think that's kind of admirable to think about and not just be like, well, yes, I love them, so I'll always have them. So I have one more question for you, and then we'll wrap up, and that is, what is one myth you would like to just extinguish right now about primitive livestock guarding dogs or Central Asians specifically? Sure. So a lot of times, uh, you know, going back to the beginning of, you know, this this podcast, um, I talked about how there was this huge long list of things that, you know, reasons why you shouldn't get this breed, and um, all the things that they can't do. They'll never be you know, a good house pet, they'll never be, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And for some of them, yeah, I think some of their temperaments can be too hard, um, depending on your specific dog. But I think there's a lot of things that people, you know, block out. Oh, well, they'll never be able to train for obedience because they're a primitive dog or because Mm -hmm. they're a central Asian. They'll never be able to do a dog sport because they're reactive. They'll never be able to do this. They'll never be able to do that. And the more excuses that we make for ourselves, um, the more at least it motivates me to try to rise above it, hence why I train cats and and dogs. And, you know, what I've found is it's really not all that different. Every dog comes with their challenges. You know, I love my, like like Molly, you know, you were saying, um, we love our clients. Their dogs aren't easy. You know, I have -hmm. have people with labs who are struggling, border collies and everything that are struggling just as much as me. So... You know, if you're thinking about a primitive dog, I think the way that you, the commitment that you put into training and, you know, finding a a genetic line that, you know, um, goes with your lifestyle and even the breed too, um, but never letting people tell you you can't is kind of a couch wolves theme and my own personal (laughs) belief as well, Um, you know, Molly when I got my cat, you, you know, you told me, oh, well, let's see you do nose work with your cat. And she <laughs> started beating Nikki to the hides, and Nikki competes in nose work. So I don't think that there's really a limit. Um, you know, not every trial is going to be perfect, if, you know, especially with Nikki being reactive. Um, you're not going to be able to do every single trial or maybe every single venue, but there's always something that you can be doing with your dog. There's always something more that you can offer them more enrichment, more time with mm-hmm. them. Um, you know, do that sport that you want to do. Even if you're not competing, just practice it at home or practice it at a park or wherever it works well for you and your situation. But don't let people tell you no or say that this breed isn't going to do it. So that's, that's the take home. You know, Tori, I think you just brought a whole new realm to our community hashtag. Uh, hashtag team selective hearing not just do our dogs practice selective hearing but so do we and we're not willing to respond to the you can'ts we're not willing to the that dog can't or you shouldn't or you know you know any of the things we've dealt with no no i think i think we'll show you wrong so i I think that's a really great take home from that that's that's awesome (laughs) um 
Well, thank you everyone who's been listening to us today. Um, we love producing really interesting podcasts talking about topics that don't fit neatly into a blog post. Um, please always give us feedback. If there's a topic you'd like us to talk about, don't hesitate to ask. Um, our administrators, our moderators, and many of our members, you know, can talk about really awesome topics. And if they can't, we'll find somebody who can. I mean, between my contacts, Tori's contacts, Katie's contacts, um, everybody involved with CouchWolves, we want to get you some of the best information. And, of course, information grounded in science and not just popular opinion. Right, right, Tori? What T-shirt um, did you work so hard on for our merchandise? <laughs> well, we have um, – which one are you specifically? I'm, th I'm thinking about the science one. Oh, yes, yes. More science, less attitude. So yep, that... more, more scientifically based opinions and training and, mm -hmm. um, and less I can't do it. Yep, I can't do it. I shouldn't do it. I have to dominate them. I have to – to teach them who's boss instead of saying, no, actually, I think I can with my dog, and I think we can do it better together. So I think that's fantastic. Well, thank you, Tori, again for being our guest today. You've been amazing. You've given us a lot to think about that even I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of the day. Uh, how can people reach you if they'd like to talk to you about training or primitive livestock guarding dogs or even cat training? Sure. So for dog training, if you're in the Madison, Wisconsin area, um, you can look at dogsbestfriendtraining.com, and I do private consultations and courses or classes in person, nosework classes and beginner dog training type classes um, through them. And for cat training, you can check out spacecatacademy.com, and you can find me through those venues. Perfect. And I mean, of course, we can also always find you in the Couchfuls Facebook group, too. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, Tori posts some of the best conversation posts, I must say. I, I, I'm so busy with all this that I miss out on participating in some of them, and I regret it because I do. I enjoy the conversations Tori starts. <laughs> anyway, thank you again, and we look forward to having you guys listen to us next time. Take care. Still listening? Well, enjoy a little bit of bonus content. All right, cool. Let me do my intro then. And of course, the chickens are going to peep through the thing, but that's okay. It was better than the parrot. It's more like livestock. It'll just, it'll really be the <laughs> real experience. <laughs> that's perfect. All right, let me get my brain on. Okay. One, two, three.